towards the sun You feel the warmth of the rays And then you know you're alive And you don't have to be afraid Of anything Cause you know You know the truth and the truth The truth is love Yes it is Wasn't what they said to you Or anything that you learn From a book or from the news It's not like that Cause it's a thing It is something that you do Do, 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 do Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Baseline. Ryan Christian of The Last American Vagabond helped this show, The Baseline, get off the ground. For that, we will always be indebted to him. Ryan, as usual, has been on fire with his journalism over the past nine weeks or so. He's provided some of the most intensive coverage of what's happening in Gaza that you can find anywhere. He's uncovered and unpacked all sorts of things that would not possibly be addressed on a corporate program. Meanwhile, there's been all sorts of developments in COVID land. We have plasmid gate. We have the issue of junk proteins being created by mRNA vaccines. We have the New Zealand data dump in the Steve Kirsch MIT presentation a couple of days ago. Ryan also did some outstanding coverage of the looming issue of the CBDC, the central bank digital currency, for those that don't know. As you can tell, there's a lot to talk about. So let's say hello to Ryan Christian. Hello, Ryan. How are you today, my friend? I'm good, brother. Thanks for the invite. Happy to be here. Oh, great. And before I forget, um, Brooke Jackson says hi. Absolutely. I love Brooke. She's outstanding. Yeah, she's so cool. She's one of the most important voices in all this from the very beginning. I totally, totally agree. And um, I want to apologize to the listeners, by the way, for the quality of the interview, not the interview itself, but the audio quality specifically. I think the interview was pretty cool. But um, the audio quality, there was a couple Cocoa Krispies in there, as I call them. Um, I was basically forced to re-record the interview on Tuesday because mysteriously our computer went down for the first time ever. The, the show is systematically recorded, but it was just very strange. I don't want to get all paranoid and weird, but it's just kind of strange because Brooke in a previous interview mentioned that her computers had just stopped working, that her the passwords had been changed on her various accounts since she, she filed the lawsuit. So it was strange after I noted that she said that, that our computer completely froze and wouldn't reboot, forcing us for the first time to retake, to do a second interview. And that was done from home. So I apologize for any uh, lack of audio quality that resulted from that. But nevertheless, I think it's audible. It's, um, you know, it's workable. You can hear what she's saying. And what she's saying is of a of paramount importance and I'm actually really proud of that interview because it's just phenomenal wouldn't you say Ryan I mean the fact of how few people can explain what Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer is as, as an event as a historical legal event that ju just took place recently I mean even people within the freedom movement are like oh yeah I've heard of Brooke Jackson but they don't know critical details of the case and then you have people of course not in the medical freedom movement who are avid news consumers, and they've never heard of Brooke Jackson. You know, like any of the people I'm trying to kind of tickle their ear still or send them little notes like, hey, you want to reconsider the stuff you bought into? If I ask them, hey, have you heard of Brooke Jackson? 
across the board, <clears throat> it's no. Because if they've mm -hmm. been watching mainstream, like actually we, we mentioned in that interview, we're not going to use the term yeah, mainstream yeah. anymore because they're not mainstream. We're just going to say corporate media. But if you're listening to corporate media, you won't know about these enormous things like Brooke Jackson versus Pfizer. But um, we have a lot to talk about today, Ryan. I mean, I'm, I'm so excited that you're joining us. I want to touch on the COVID stuff. We're going to get into what's happening in Gaza. We're going to get into the atrocities that are occurring still, unfortunately, in Palestine. And um, I brought Ryan specifically on so we could get into that because many listeners were requesting that we get into that discussion. And it's something that is dear to my heart. It's something that I do think is of critical importance. But I didn't want to uh, tiptoe into the discussion. I wanted to go right into it. And Ryan's been doing such outstanding coverage of that. There's not a better man for the job. But we want to take off where we left off because, of course, we covered COVID pretty extensively in our first discussion with Ryan. And I just want to generally ask you to get the ball rolling here, Ryan, in terms of all the developments. And it seems like there's just new little developments. And, you know, I mean, little meaning, you know, one of many, but many significant developments um, occurring every day. We have plasmid gate. We have the papers showing that mRNA induces the body to create junk proteins. We have Steve Kirsch and the forbidden New Zealand data that now someone is facing, I think, seven years in prison for divulging this uh, this data, what is you know pertaining to public health. And Steve Kirsch did a, an MIT presentation in the MIT. Uh, I don't know if it's a an auditorium that's dedicated to him, the Steve Kirsch Auditorium. That's pretty cool. If you have a an MIT, a section of the MIT campus named after you, probably a pretty smart dude. But um, yeah, where where are you right now with COVID? What what have you been observing, Ryan? What is sticking out to you? What should we be focused on in terms of the up to date version of that discussion? Well, I think the important overall view, the, the kind of 10,000 elevation kind of view of the whole thing now is that we have to remember that in the beginning, first year, you know, people were very skeptical. There was a lot of reason to be skeptical, a lot of doubt around the people, but, but and, and a lot of information that came out that showed that there was justifiable reasons to doubt whether they meant something, meant to do it a certain way, meant to hurt somebody. Bottom line is after, you know, maybe around 2021 into 2022, in my opinion, this was a proven fact. And that's the interesting thing about a lot of the stuff we're dealing with today. You know, for instance, the most embarrassingly obvious genocide, I think, in the history of the human species that we're debating about whether it's genocide. You know, it's like you have the facts today that are blatant. And we get and, and because of the way this broken system is operating, it, it just the two party illusion creates this never ending cycle of of, you know, conversation is good. But when facts are present and things are provable or rather just the body of evidence is very obvious, it's frustrating that we can't just acknowledge that. But I, I get why that happens. And so my point is in covid during the illusion therein, it was undeniably obvious that these things were dangerous. I, my opinion was right away. And I, I, as I think our coverage has become very clear and, and i point back to it still that we weren't making guesses we were basing this on the evidence that these things had like for, for instance my entire youtube account as well as my patreon were removed for allegations around myocarditis i believe that was what both of were related to mm. just simply saying it was possible right and now we know that's the case but these narratives continue but why i'm saying all this is that you know we're at a point today where a lot of new stuff is coming out 
wildly important stuff, things that are so damning, you know, things that are unprecedented, like you're discussing, like the frame-shifting conversation, the junk proteins, or the idea of the DNA contamination, or the idea of the time frames and how we're looking and more and more finding the evidence overwhelmingly showing that the vast, I think it was somewhere over 70% of all the deaths we're discussing, I think this was pertaining to, I think it was Australia, but I forget the exact location, but you'll find it similar to any place that had mass vaccinations. This was in this location, 70% of the deaths happened after vaccination and 10 days after vaccination. You know, these are huge data points or just the reality of all the different inconsistencies about the efficacy, the lies about the, the uh, emergency use authorization or the fact that it's always been a military countermeasure. Like, these are gigantic stories in and of themselves. So it's not to suggest that these new stories are less important. But my point is that these things were proven in my mind in 2021 to 2022. And yet we're still acting like this doesn't change the conversation or some of the people are in the mainstream. And the point that that goes into is that even though we have these things, and let's not forget, this is a this is a, a, a technology, a shot in general that win the Nobel Prize, the mRNA technology. Right. And yet we're talking about misfiring proteins and DNA contamination. Clearly, they didn't really look at that, right? right. <laughs> but now we're talking about three. Biden even just discussed three new COVID vaccines coming out in Australia. They have a Moderna plant. They just discussed on the record is giving indemnity to everything coming out not just the covid overlap and the emergency but every new product they're making from that factory so my point is this is not stopping and it seems clear that the evidence regardless of how obvious is on is not going to stop it you know so my question for the world is what do you do when that happens you know it's an interesting situation i think more talking more discussion more real world action will eventually have an effect if we get enough of a majority which is already there but it's pretty crazy to see yeah, you made a great point on, I don't know if it was the last episode or very recently, might have been just yesterday, where you said, you know, we all agree that these things have failed to some extent. It's just the degree to which they failed that's in debate. There are people who believe the people who push this stuff should be in jail, should be in prison, basically, for crimes against humanity. And then there are the people who push it who say, well, there were a few bumps in the road and it didn't work out so great. But when we tweak a couple things, the next batch will be just fine. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's actually what they're saying around that comp, the point you made around the frame shifting or the, the junk proteins is, is that they're, they're basically just acting like, oh, no, this almost almost in and of itself proves this is the right path. Just that we need to find that, that's what they think they said on Wall Street Journal. The other they need to fine tune almost as if they actually framed it as this is an opportunity to fine tune these injections. <laughs> wow. Talk about that. Wow. How offensive, actually. And yeah. um you know, and it's weird. I don't know who's a shill and who's just a dupe, but I'm finding more and more people coming out of the woodwork who are aggressively, I mean, as though they're shilling, as though they were paid to do so, just defending this stuff so rabidly, you know, still calling people idiots for questioning this stuff. And and the name calling and everything continues. Like, for example, and I'm not going to mention the space again because I just don't want to advertise the guy. And I think he's a jerk, actually. But uh, there was a space that hosted, they, they kind of disingenuously invited Steve Kirsch, who was on for hours. And Steve was really um, a gentleman. I mean, it was outrageous to me, though. I kind of wanted to be like a thug for Steve, like a, like a hockey enforcer or something. Like, okay, Steve's the brains here, and, and I want to be the tough guy because, I mean, they had a, a uh, co-host who's 
whose face was Steve Kirsch with the clown nose on. So it's like, okay, you've invited him in to discuss things, and your co-host is is literally clowning Steve. And um, just the tone is, is there's a weird tone where people seem to think that all sorts of little insults can be intermingled with a supposedly scientific discussion. And actually, we right. discussed on the phone a few weeks ago, and I wanted a quick retake about that because um, you, you said some interesting things at the time. But there's a weird new thing going on that I'm observing, which is we had the discussion of, of excess mortality put on the table. John Campbell has been covering it extensively. Um, there's a few uh, Twitter pages that have been covering it pretty well. Um, and in general, it's just coming up. I mean, I, I opened up Twitter and there it was trending, excess mortality. There's a lot of discussion of this excess mortality stuff. But now I'm seeing people aggressively pushing back with supposedly some academic basis to their claim, saying, oh, no, this is wrong. You didn't make adjustments for this and that and the other thing. We have to adjust these and the p-value. And I mean, eventually, I'm not a statistician and I'm not a mathematician. Like, I know basic math. I'm pretty functional in a grocery store or whatever. I can help my six-year-old with his homework pretty confidently. But I do not have any expertise when it comes to... And actually, it's funny because this one character, I sent him a really simple year-by-year layout of the the highlight of the cancer rates going up in a noticeable way in 2022 and 2023, and he sent me back immediately this really complicated chart saying, no, that hasn't been adjusted, so that's not accurate, and you have to look at this chart, and the chart that he (laughs) sent me had like yellow uh, lines and purple and green and red like intersecting and crossing with different marks and different coded symbol i'm like i don't understand what this chart is indicating at all so it's like that's kind of where we are is that i thought it was just this you know there was the weird um you know claim at first that oh this is the retroactive effect of lockdown i said wow things are getting bad when they're forced to admit that lockdown was harmful Mm -hmm. which is another thing that we already knew but you know when they have to use that to, to cover their tracks I thought, well, things are getting bad for them, but now they're they're sending legions of little, you know, academics or pseudo academics to try to say that you know take these claims of excess mortality and turn them on their heads and say, oh no, there's no excess mortality, and I don't know what to make of it all. I don't know what the big debate is actually about the uh, the New Zealand data. I'm still trying to wrap my head about around it as many hours as I've listened already. Well, what's interesting around the, the excess data, I mean, first of all, you know, I agree with you in general, but it's like, who knows? You know, it, it could be a combination of being put to it but and, and people just actually believing this. But I, I, I'm willing, I'm willing I, it's important to point out that with what was done to many people, including doctors and so on, who are, I don't know how they don't see that it was a mistake, like let's say they did this not knowing that this was bad or not understanding it because they didn't want to look, whatever it is. It's obvious now to anybody that cares to even glance at what what anybody else is saying outside of the narrative. And so a lot of these people, you know, they gave these things to their children. And then even worse, maybe that child died and they called it something else, right? So there's a point at which these people have overcommitted. 
Right. Good, where good word. They will never admit to themselves that they were guilty for doing the thing that they know took their child's life. They will actually, in fact, go so as far as to defend to the death the narrative you know, for the rest of their life because they are. It, it's cognitive dissonance in such an extreme way. I, again, it's not even like a conscious choice. It's like a protective mechanism, right? Yeah. It's like you're, you don't want to like have a mental breakdown kind of a thing. And I think that's a part of it. Del Bigtree, I think, made that argument very well, that a lot of these mothers out there will just defend these things for safe forever, no matter what, because they don't want to acknowledge what they did. Yeah. You know? yeah. and, and so that's part of it. But I think what's important to point out, and, and to be clear, I definitely would argue it's just as likely this is being done like deliberately by some kind of government entity, for sure, because they've been caught lying about a million things. Sure. But what's obvious to point out is it's such a lie to say, you know, the numbers don't lie. Numbers lie all the damn time right. because people use them. I guess you could argue that numbers don't lie as a static reality, but people use numbers in surreptitious ways to manipulate what you see, you know. And so this is the, this is the same thing we talk about in scientific studies. It's called p-hacking. The concept is where you're taking the data that you find and you basically juxtapose it in different ways until it adds up, it looks in a way that gives you a result that you can basically work with. It's not, necessar- it's not necessarily wrong, but it's very dishonest hmm. because it is dis- it's disingenuous and it shows you something that's not actually what the data shows. And so, yes, you can absolutely use statistics, as we saw very clearly during COVID-19, to present an image that's not, really, that's not the actual reality. So this is why we got into this whole age adjusting and the, you know, all the things we're talking about. Those have value, obviously. You ask any person who's involved in this field, they're going to say yes. And, and here's why that's important in this case. It's sort of like getting into the uh, relative risk reduction versus absolute risk reduction. Like they both have a meaning and an important place. But when you use one instead of the other, you can make, create a lie, sort of like in the beginning of COVID-19 when they used relative risk and claimed it was 95% effective. Well, no, that meant it had a 95% difference between the two numbers. That's relative risk reduction. It only ended up being like a 0.08% increase in whatever they claimed was the benefit, which now even then we know isn't true. So back to this guy's point. When you're saying, no, it should be adjusted. Well, if you look at this and you break it down and you're, you're doing a, you know, across-the-board excess mortality, which, by the way, is what any on everybody's talking about. They're not saying it's not valid. They're just saying we don't understand why, which is also a lie. So it's, it's interesting that these people are trying to poke their finger in and challenge not just the conspiracy theorists, but the same science they said we were supposed to trust. Isn't that interesting? It's sort of like them, again, like you said, challenging the idea of a lockdown just to make this next point. You know, they're eating themselves alive to make this next argument. But long story short, the point is that the data that they're using shows an undeniable excess mortality across all ages because this was a universal worldwide, you know, medical countermeasure. So it's undeniable that there's an outcome there. So just because you want to, like, you could be like only women of 40, you know, above 40 on only Tuesdays of every second week. Like, do you think that's going to look different than the whole picture? Of course it will. But that doesn't mean that's any more valid than what we're doing today. You know, so it's, it is a manipulation. And quite frankly, I find it hard to believe they don't know that. Yeah. Well, that's some very insightful stuff there. And um, I want to get into the Palestine discussion. But right before we do that, could you just give us a quick intro, I guess you could say, to the CBDC conversation? Because, you know, your content is so diverse on The Last American Vagabond. So, you know, we treasure that. And uh, rather than just having a, a focused conversation, we want to, we wanna, you know, taste the buffet a little bit. And I think some of uh, 
my audience might not be familiar with the whole discussion of CBDC. I mean, it's a really, really, it's another one of these really big issues that we, it would be great if more people could get into this discussion because so much stuff mm -hmm. is being snuck in there right under our noses. And it's going to be like a, a rude awakening when this stuff is introduced in a systematic way if we haven't created a united front at that critical interval. So can you please just give us a quick intro to the CBDC discussion to those who might not have ever even heard the acronym? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, first off, it's central bank digital currency, right? And so we already have examples of this, as you know. There's multiple countries that have rolled out their version, you know, their own, you know, national central bank digital currency or, or otherwise digital currencies or even in some cases cryptocurrencies, all, which are different. Not to get into the, you know, the deep conversation of the difference between them, because obviously cryptocurrency is digital currency, but not all digital currency is cryptocurrency, blockchain and so on. But what's important to understand, like the, just the basic overview, is that we're, as they're even telling us, so that, that's the important thing to realize, this is not some hypothesis. They're openly telling you this is going to happen, and they're openly telling you that when this does happen, it's going to be a little uncomfortable. Of course, for the greater benefit right around the corner, which that's the big if. The point is that they're going to shift into the digital infrastructure, which we already have, but we're talking about an all-across-the-board digital currency, digital ID, digital everything. And that's what they've been wanting for a very long time. And I argue that we haven't had the technological ability to make this move until right around, you know, COVID time, I think, is the whole point. Is this executed, in my opinion, because of the technology meeting the plan, right, which wasn't there before. But so what we're talking about is having a central, you know, backed by the central bank digital currency that is essentially programmable, that can be turned off, turned on at any moment, and that ultimately can be used to dictate what you can and can't buy based on some kind of a social credit score. Now, these are not, again, these are not hypotheses. These are real. I mean, China's already doing this. The United States has pointed at it many times. And what we're already using in many ways, like the ESG overlap, all these different conversations, even your basic credit score, these are all social credit versions. And let's not forget even the, I think it's Experion, was already partnered with things like the well, the uh, Welcome Group and the well. Uh, uh, MasterCard, already overlapping these scores with your ability to financially transact. So the real point is that they argue this is better, I mean, all different things for climate change and whatever narrative they say, but it really comes just simply down to one, universal tracking of everything you're doing with financial currency and the ability to stop you should you go afoul of any number of things. Like the basic argument they're using is about like terrorism. Right. It's always how we go with it. But let's not forget, they shut off the banks of people in Canada for the trucking protests. Mm -hmm. Dr. Mercola in the United States already had his bank pulled. Same with his CFO and people, even his children, the children of their families had their banks canceled. Mm -hmm. So this is already happening. Right. So my argument is this will be used against people just like us under the guise that we're somehow fueling violence or domestic terrorism. But that's just my opinion on how it can work. The simple reality is that it's their choice, not yours anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it's very concerning. I mean, wow. I mean, that that's the thing. It's like, come on, folks. Do we want the world to start slipping into a place that's frankly, like, not worth living in? I don't think so. Like, it would be great if you could just go for a walk and not be under surveillance or, you know, under the uh, influence or control of these nefarious forces that just they, they won't yeah, leave anything alone. 
on that on that very point, like so here's a good like visualization for somebody who may not and rightly so should be skeptical. Question everything, right? That's important. But let's just say, you know, you we're on a lockdown again, which we all saw happen. Nobody should be okay with that. But let's say another pandemic comes out, the government says you're locked down, you can't go outside and you want to go out for a walk in the park. All of a sudden, because we well know that there's security cameras everywhere, your phone's probably tracking you based on your location, they probably got drones in the sky. All of a sudden they go, Oh, Jeremiah's walking in the park. Well, we said that wasn't okay. And, and for his safety, we're now going to turn off his digital currency so he's not able to buy gas to be able to go where he needs to go or be able to enter the fence that's now locking all the public locations. You know, this is where this goes. Right. And it's always going to be framed in a way that's because we're trying to save you and keep you safe. Right? This is right now. People need to understand. This is not tomorrow. These things already exist. And that's what's so terrifying to me. It's just about taking that step. Yeah, seriously, seriously. So now we're going to venture into this thing that you've been covering very extensively, and I can only imagine how stressful that is. Honestly, I mean, it's not as stressful as being there, but the images coming out of Gaza and the reports coming out of Gaza, just unimaginable cruelty. I mean, really the worst of the human race. Um, Just people being annihilated, children being killed, hospitals being blown up, um, civilian areas being attacked. I heard recently that the civilian area that Palestinians were directed towards was then bombed. So we said, hey, go there, and then we bomb you when you get there. I mean, really gruesome stuff. And, um, And it's just so ugly when any entity, any political entity or a group of people has the language of dehumanization geared up to justify atrocities against another people. I mean, anytime any group, any ethnic group is being characterized as not human, there's something wrong there. We're all human beings. We're all uh, from imperfect cultures and we're all, you know, imperfect uh, individuals. But every human being on the planet is a human being. We should never entertain the language of dehumanization. And uh, it's really it's really sad to see. And I mentioned to you also off air that it's kind of interesting. It's kind of sad, but it's also interesting to see the medical freedom movement being divided along these lines. I'm in different groups on Twitter where, you know, the pro-Israeli propaganda is being uh, funneled through the same channel where we were just talking about medical freedom. And then thankfully Mm -hmm. there's some channels that I think are a little bit more balanced or a little bit more aware of what's going on. But, um, I mean, I don't even want to lead you in any direction. In general, I mean, you've been covering so much. What are some things that you would like to outline for us? We all know this atrocity is going on. Uh, we all who are concerned feel somewhat powerless. I mean, we've had huge rallies that, and I always question the the effect of a rally. Basically, I think it's a great symbolic gesture, but I don't think the power structure responds in particular. Uh, what can we do? First of all, well, last of all, maybe what can we do? But first of all, can you outline some of the things that you've been highlighting over the past over two months in your extensive coverage of these atrocities? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, you know, it's such a gigantic conversation, and that's it's just it's difficult to to summarize. You know, but I think what's important is first of all to remember that this beyond question did not start on October seventh. Right. 
right? That's a lot. That's for the average person to understand. This started 75 years ago with an illegal occupation and a brutal ethnic cleansing and and murder. Uh, you know, ethnically cleansed over 800,000 people to multiple refugee camps in multiple areas, some of which ended up within what became Israel, right. West Bank, Gaza, right? But these basically displaced an entire society, right? And this and this is maintained by the United Nations. At one point, uh, just to mention, at one point, 40% of the population of Jordan was Palestinian. Right, right. And this is one of the reasons why Jordan is so defensive over West, the West Bank, which is they right in the beginning of this, they argued that if, if, the, if Israel tries to displace the Palestinians out of the West Bank, which already seems like it's beginning, that means war to them. That was their word, which is that's a pretty big statement because they, they share like custodianship over these areas. And what, what's so go, to, to your question, to, to starting from like the beginning from October 7th forward, knowing that this did not start there and knowing that there's been ever since the original Nakba and ethnic cleansing, that there's been endless, brutal occupation. It's an apartheid state for every NGO and human rights group that's talked about it. Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, Beth Selim, which is an Israeli group, openly calling this an apartheid state. And, and you know, realize that they've been dealing with all sorts of segregation and, and censorship and attacks and rape, murder, everything you could imagine. And so the point is, and, and of course, there is also Palestinians who have fought back and, and also done things that you could call illegal. But the reality is you have to see this as an occupation, and which, mean, which is legally understood by all international groups. And then that means, per the Geneva Conventions, any occupied territory has the right to armed rebellion. Not because they were fired on the day before, but because at any moment should they decide to pick up arms and fight back against the occupation, that is legally protected. That does not mean they have the right to kill civilians or kidnap people. But realize that that is the static reality of international law. So on October 7th, we know that Hamas carried out this act. What's important to understand is, first of all, that it's an undeniable fact that has come out since, and we knew this before, but it's become public knowledge after this, that even Haaretz posted on October 9th, Netanyahu and his party and the Israeli government have openly stated that the way to keep a two-state solution from happening, which now it's become public as well, that they don't want that, as I've been trying to show people for 20 years, that if they keep Hamas funded and in power in Gaza and keep the PLO in power in the West Bank, they can keep the Palestinians divided and stop a two-state solution. That's a stated reality that even Haaretz published, so it's not up for dispute. So that's important to understand. So first of all, anything that you think happened following October 7th or on October 7th, Netanyahu and the Israeli government are in part responsible for. You can't decouple those things. So then we have to ask ourselves why, with all the warnings and all the information, which has also become public, the New York Times wrote an article disclosing that they were given a warning over a year ago this was coming. Egypt gave Israel a warning about a month before this. Same thing. There's IDF members that have spoken out to Haaretz and other papers that months leading up to this, they were saying, we can see them training by the fence. We can see them doing mock execution. We can see all these things happening, right? All the listed all this stuff off. And they were literally threatened with going, this is the direct quote from the IDF leadership, if you keep bringing this up, we will bring you to trial. That's a direct quote from Haaretz. Imagine that. Trying to warn them, and they were told they were going to get prosecuted to keep bringing it up. Then on October 7th, per many of reports, including from people like Efrat Fengenson, who is a former IDF intelligence entity, that they had, I think, over 15 checkpoints. Now, these numbers are disputed. 
We know some of them, but she argues 15 were unmanned. For Some say four, some say eight, but we know hours. Or hours, unmanned. After all this warning. And then we also have reports of all sorts of other smaller indications that they were aware of this and ultimately that there was reasons, actions they took that don't add up with the warning. Then we have Hamas that enters the scene. Now, there's lots of questions around right there, whether or not Israel might have involved their own people, mind you, for people in the West. The Israeli population, the vast majority of them, are there's a combination of saying that we think Netanyahu allowed this to happen, or all the way to the other side of the spectrum, they're saying that they think the IDF was involved. That's from the Israeli Jewish population, mind you. I don't know where I stand exactly, but it's very, we have to understand that what we're being presented in the West is not the same thing that people in Israel are saying. Remember, the Times of Israel, on the 8th, the next day, wrote the article that said, Netanyahu's been propping up Hamas for years, and now it's blown up in our faces. So they very clearly think that they're involved. They're calling for his resignation. So all that has to be understood. Then it gets into the really dark part of the story, where it has been proven in 14 different ways that the IDF killed its own people on October 7th. Now, we can debate what that means, how many, the majority, all of them, one of them. The point is it happened. We have helicopter pilots that have testified, or rather, not in a court of law, but spoken to newspapers and different reporters that they opened fire on the cars that were fleeing back into Gaza without knowing whether they had civilians. We've got IDF tank drivers who admitted they were told to fire on the houses in the kibbutz, in Bieri specifically. And they asked, are there civilians? And their commander said, we don't know, fire anyway. That's on the record. Wow. And, now, and then we can prove that some of the people that came back from Gaza admitted that they watched their family members get killed by IDF tanks in the kibbutz Be'ere before they were kidnapped. Then, while they were in Gaza, they now reported that not only were they treated well, and by the way, every single person that has been released when asked directly, not through the IDF or somebody else, but speaking directly, said they were treated well, that they got every, they, they were fed, they got water. While, well, mind you, people are starving and dying of thirst in Gaza, and they got feminine hygiene. They were allowed to pray together, to be collected together. But that's not to say they weren't kidnapped. Of course they were. That's a crime, and that's terrifying. But they just admitted that it was the opposite of what the IDF was saying. Then they came back and admitted that the thing they were scared of most was the IDF bombings of Gaza. That's directly quoted by Ynet News, by Haaretz by numerous Israeli publications, and they've stated it themselves and continue to. Apparently, what the West isn't hearing, which is also reported and also stated publicly, is that many of these hostages have permanent hearing damage because of the nonstop onslaught of the IDF bombings. Mm-hmm. Right? So all of this paints a very clear picture that not only is it possible the, the Israeli government was allowing this, knowing that they funded these people that later took these actions, but went on to try to kill their own people, which is called the Hannibal Directive. A colonel in the Israeli military speaking with another publication said on the record, looking at the shooting of the cars, that this was a mass Hannibal. Because the whole point for your audience to know, and look this up, it's a public directive by the Israeli government. When they have hostages being taken, the Hannibal Directive is that they kill everybody so the hostage can't be used against them. This colonel admitted on the record this was a mass Hannibal. So we need to ask ourselves what really happened. And then if you want me to, I can get into some of the more gruesome lies, which is stuff that I, we've proven, per even Haaretz, again, breaking down the information about the atrocity allegations, the things like all of the rape allegations, the things like beheading 40 babies, right. things like the baby in the oven, 
all of these have been shown to be not proven. Now, I could argue that doesn't mean that, you, that maybe they happened and we haven't proven it yet. And the White House contributed to the outrageousness right. of this. Like, I mean, not just in sponsorship and political sponsorship, but I mean, didn't Biden himself make reference to the beheading of babies? Yep, he actually claimed he saw it. And that has been undeniably proven to be a fake story. Wow. I mean, and, and this takes me to Joe Biden. You know, and, and again, you guys know I'm, I'm not... I'm not red coat or blue coat. I'm, I'm distinctly third party, which is something I'd like to discuss here, actually, which is, um, you know, you make reference to the two party illusion. And I think that's a great phrase. I think it should be readily on the tip of our tongues. And I'm 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 through. I mean, to whatever extent I've tried to participate in lesser of two evils voting, I refuse to do it anymore based on on not just these atrocities, but various ongoing atrocities. I will not vote for a Democrat. I will not vote for a Republican. I think that they are one party pretending to be two. And it really underscores the the contradiction that people have been ensnared into because I see people who were so pro-vaccine and even pro-mandate, and now they're saying, I won't vote for you again, Mr. Biden. But you took his medication. You took his deadly medication. And I'm thinking, if we look at a timeline of Joe Biden, I mean, the man eulogized the Ku Klux Klansman. He made his famous quote. I don't know what year the quote was made where he said, uh, you know, he didn't want his children growing up in a racial jungle, quote unquote. Of course, is the 1994 crime bill that completely devastated the black community to historic proportions. Um, he voted for basically every war that ever came across his desk. I've seen him in an interview saying that he would double down on his yes war vote for the Iraq uh, situation under George W. Bush saying, oh, well, you know, even though weapons of mass destruction was proven to be a total farce, um, Saddam needed to be taken out. So I would have voted yes anyhow. So the guy, I mean, how do we characterize him as anything other than a death merchant? His whole career is about putting people in prison, supporting war, and then when he makes a foray into pharmacology, you think that that was the one correct thing that he did? I doubt it. Was he honest in that instance? I doubt it. So I just find it strange. I'm seeing a lot of people who are pro the biosecurity agenda. Now they're apoplectic with rage about what's happening in Gaza, saying, I don't support this and I don't support the Democratic Party supporting this. Well, it's not unprecedented, actually, guys. It's not a uh, it's not out of keeping. I mean, the two party illusion, both of these parties, which I insist are one party pretending to be two, have propped up this Zionist project for decades now, uninterrupted. So, I mean, what, what do you think? How do we deal with this, Ryan? I mean, I'm coming to the conclusion there was a great movie by the great Richard Pryor, Brewster's Millions, where uh, without, you know, recapping the whole movie, he ran a political campaign and he didn't want to be in office, though. So th- the campaign was vote none of the above on Election Day. I mean, can we do something like that? You know, there's also the great George Carlin who had his whole thing of don't blame me for what the people you voted for did. You voted for them. Don't blame me for not voting. You voted for the people who committed these heinous acts. Speaking of heinous, I mean, 
look at we were talking about the Nobel Prize for the COVID shots. Well, yeah, the Nobel Prize lost credibility by far when they gave Henry Kissinger the Nobel Prize, and they additionally lost credibility when they gave Barack Obama the Nobel Prize for peace for what, drone bombing people like crazy? Like the guy bombs seven different countries, you give him a Nobel Peace Prize? How stupid is that? But without getting into that, what do we do about this two-party illusion, Ryan? I mean, people are pretty stuck in the red coat versus blue coat mentality. What strategies, what tactics, never mind even a strategy, do we have any tactics available to us to start chipping away at this? Yeah, I mean, you know, you, you mentioned you know, there's a lot of different angles to discuss the illusion itself. Really quickly, by the way, just before, I wanted to make sure I reiterate to people, because I know the things we were just talking about are very difficult for some people to accept. Yeah. And I just want to make sure people do not mishear that, hmm. that all the things we discussed are things that you can literally prove today based on the actual verification that these things aren't real, but the reality of even Israeli media showing you that they not, are not real. Things like using images that the Israeli government or journalists have pointed to, demonstrated, that we've now proven were, in take, were actually from 2022. Things like that, yeah. that are undeniable, right? So, but back to, back to this bigger point, I mean, so you make a great point about the illusion of all of it, right? The good example is the Zionist entity and how these parties are blindly supportive of this regardless. And so I do agree with you that it's obvious that it's, it's just one entity, right? We're talking about the government and their games to make us think we're battling each other. But at the end of the day, though, I do believe that you're, you know, any number of people, like the most standout ones are always, in my opinion, people like Nancy Pelosi, Maxine Waters, that are like these, like, I think it's a, like a laugh out loud joke to pretend they have any kind of real ability to control things. Doesn't mean they don't have power, though, right? They're in positions of power. They're just, in my opinion, they're they're conditioned to think that they're in the know when they really don't know what's going on at all, in my opinion. But so my point is, people like that, they they really do hate Donald Trump. They really do think that they're fine. I I believe that because they're being played. But you're right, though, but where it matters, it really ends up being one thing, pro-war, pro the the things they really care about. And so how how do we get past that or any other political entity, you know, system that is broken or problematic. And, you know, the question is really first just always being able to continue talking about it. We never stop that part of it. We have to continue the dialogue and continue calling these things out. But it can't just be that, right? We need actual, we need action. And if you think it makes a difference, because I, I, I believe in the world the way it is today, it's very unlikely that these things have a real gigantic outcome. But I know they draw attention and they maybe, and maybe I'm wrong, Go out and protest on the streets. Go call your politicians. Do whatever you think you need to do to get more momentum going. But the more, the, my big thing is that I think the majority of this country is aware this is broken. We don't, I mean, we don't need to look beyond the numbers themselves. The reality that right now the, the largest voting block, and it gets bigger every year, of people in this country are people that don't even partake in the election. And then within the people that do, the largest voting block registers independents. And yet we only ever get left and right on the stage. It's a, it's a slap in the face. They know we don't like this. They just don't care. They need to get what they're doing over the years is trying to drive us back into specifically left and right. You know, and I think that's the obvious illusion there. But you make a great point about the Brewster's Million. I love that movie, by the way. But what the, like for, here's something that I often point out. When you go to vote, something that is supposed to be on that ballot, no matter what, is the option to abstain. Like a box that literally says abstain. Like that, that is not not voting. That's an action. That's, in fact, a vote. Your marked vote is abstaining 
And the reality behind that, and the, the, what I've written articles about in the past, the the the, lot, the lost power of abstaining, or I forget how I framed it, is that it really ultimately means that you're making a statement by saying I'm publicly not casting, so abstaining from voting for any number of reasons. You don't believe that the vote is honest. You don't believe that all the candidates are represented. I mean, it's any number of reasons. And let's not forget that going back to the founding fathers' conversation, that that was part of the debate. That was you had the choice to abstain. Right. And so the thing today is they've removed that from your view. Right. It's sort of like jury nullification. Right. Most people don't even know what that means. It really means that the jury always has the option to simply even if the, even if everything points in one direction, even if everybody shows he's guilty and all the evidence adds up to this person is guilty and the judge thinks so as the jury. You can stand up and say, we deem him innocent because we don't believe this is a valid charge, or we don't believe, believe that the law is valid. There's all the, the point is the people always have the power, and the government has actively over the years desperately tried to remove that from your view. They don't want you to know about jury nullification. And the same point here. And I think the problem is they don't add abstain because if, let's just say, all of a sudden, that largest voting bloc decided to actually show up and put abstain, then they would have to report on TV, if they ever did that, that 70% of the population abstained from the vote. What does that make it look like? It makes it look like they're not legitimate. Yeah. And that's the starting point. Yeah. Right? So how about this? Do you make it off the back of your joke? Somebody should run for office and put their name as abstain. Right. <laughs> now, think about that. I mean, I mean, I, and so then forcing that to be interesting and get that dialogue going because we need that right. Now, going beyond that, you know, it, it, it's an impossible system to, to pull back from because of how immersed we are in it. But I really do believe that we have we can change this in a positive way if we go back to state concepts, personal freedom, personal responsibility and remove the federal government entirely, quite frankly. But that's just a starting point. Yeah. You know, Ryan, would you be open to taking some calls? We're, we're, sure. we're getting some calls because sure. uh, we're, we're, we're getting some, some lights here on the board. So, yeah, I think we have Noel on the line from Brooklyn. Brother Noel, what do you have to say today? We are on the yes, Ryan uh, Christian. Good afternoon to you and your guests. Thank you. Um, you all know when the weak stream media, as if it has a prostate problem, yeah. <laughs> um, when they always speak about Hamas, they always say they're a terrorist organization. Am I correct? Yeah, that's, the, that's generally it. Right. But what people don't say is that Hamas was created by Israel. Right. Right? Correct. You know? Well, they never, for whatever reason, ever, ever, ever say that. And that was to... Uh, um, uh, that was to help, at the time, Yasser Arafat with the PLO to, to actually, uh, you know, destroy the PLO, the Palestine Liber Liberation Organization. Right. The, uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is that on 60 Minutes, which has, in my opinion, gone down uh, tremendously over the years, that um, when uh, Kamala Harris, the Vice President of the United States, was being interviewed, the, uh, the exact script that they all read, well, Israel has a right to defend themselves. Uh, both of you gentlemen, could you mention who they forgot to, that has a right to defend themselves that they never mentioned? Yeah, right. Right. That, that, that's, all I, uh, that's all I wanted to say. Oh, lastly, I wanted to say about Biden, when he was running for office for president, he said, I will not, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him now, he said, I will not mandate the vaccine. Yeah. Did he not say that? 
He said he and wouldn't he and he, he couldn't. Law, so it was huh? a double. It was. He said he wouldn't and he couldn't. He said he legally didn't have the ability to. So he was lying. There on you fronts. go. There you go. You 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 made it even better. So lastly, because uh, I know there's other people that Kathy Hochul, the governor of the state of New York, here, Mayor Adams. I hope when this when they're all brought to uh, justice, hopefully, and maybe I'm a little naive. But if the world court or whoever gets involved with this about the atrocities, when they all say, oh, we stand behind Israel, that, they, that they're put on trial. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Noel. Thank you, Dan. Um, I want to well, read this I, quote. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want you to respond. And I want to quickly, before you do, I just want to read the quote that I was looking for. Anyone who wants to thwart the establishment of a Palestinian state has to support bolstering Hamas and transferring money to Hamas. This is part of our strategy to isolate the Palestinians in Gaza from the Palestinians in the West Bank. Benjamin Netanyahu's statement at a March 2019 meeting of his Likud party Knesset members. So that's that's Benjamin Netanyahu, who I just quoted, for anyone who doesn't yep. understand and, the context. And that, that was actually publicized, which is why most people know it today, by Haaretz two days after October 7th. Right? So clearly making a point to, under, to make sure people understand that they were funding them with the explicit stated purpose of keeping them divided, which undermines the statement that they've ever wanted a two-state solution. Right? So it's just inherently dishonest. But so he brings up the good the points, right? The good points there. That for it, I, I would argue, though, and this is the only way that I framed it on my show, is that I, I completely agree with what we with what Hamas is today, right? The impetus of what Hamas became is created by Israel in the United States. But I would argue that you could you could prove that there, as an entity there was something that existed before it was turned into what it is today, right? So you can, like when you say created, it's not. I I wouldn't frame it as from whole cloth, it became, you know, but it was something that they, and this is what they do anywhere, right? They tap existing entities and then they co-opt them, turn them into what they want them to be. And so he's right, though. You know, I would, I would say that's still a valid statement. They created what Hamas is, right? And then as we can prove, they funded them for the state purpose of keeping them divided. And I mean, there's all sorts of things you can go into for what that then opens up. Let's also not forget that the United States government, with Israel's support and Israel's funding as well, have, as far back as you could look, really, in the conversation of the war on the Middle East and terrorism, they have actively been funding the most radical elements of Islam. Yeah, absolutely. Because the the other elements, the more moderate elements, did not want to bend over for the U.S. government interests. So they fund the crazier ones, right? And so this is... It's amazing that we can't have that on a Well, it's sort of like funding Nazis in Ukraine, whoever fights the most ruthless style of warfare. Let's just go with that. Or it's any, it's, in my opinion, it's the people who are more morally ambiguous, more in line with the, the actual in- lack of integrity of the U.S. government and their allies. Hmm. The idea of being able to do, you know, as long as we give them money and let them kill whoever they want, they'll basically do what we say. You know, and that's, these are, that means that's terrorism. That's, that's the, re- the reality. But when you get into the point about the defending yourself, I'm glad he brought that up. Because it's so insulting. Obviously, his point there is that obviously the Palestinians have a right to defend themselves. You know, it's, it's ridiculous we ever made that one-sided argument. But what I always said was hilarious, which is so insulting about this, everybody has a right to defend themselves. Yeah, like it, it becomes a moot point. It's like, well, so does everybody else. Like, so repeating that after 40 days of bombing is only to insinuate that everything they do is active defense, right? right? But the important, more important point is because, and this has come from human rights lawyers, uh, international law, law lawyers, people that speak from the U.N., saying that because this is an occupied territory, which it is, there's no debating that, they, they forego the right of self-defense 
It would be like saying the United States is bombing Florida. That's not, I mean, just if you can't, it's a different dynamic. Now, you could argue that if they were in the midst of some kind of military action, which now that they've been doing this for 75 years, you can't really make that argument, that they could argue that belligerent occupier defense. But the point is that they have not kept the civilian population safe. They've foregone their rights in that regard. So from every angle, they actually don't have the right to self-defense when dealing with their own territory, or rather their own occupied territory. So right. it's a great point to bring up, so I'm glad he called. So thank, thank you, Noel, for the great points. Yeah, absolutely. And we have, uh, we have another outstanding caller. We have Phil from California on the line. Are you with us, Phil? Can you hear me? Yes, I am, Jeremiah. Can you hear me? Yes, excellent. I hear you clearly. Phil is a very astute caller. So what do you have for us today, Phil? Another astute caller. I should say all of our callers are quite astute, but Phil is a, is a regular here. So what, what's going on, Phil? Man, well, thank you for, for that. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, likewise, both of you, Ryan, uh, Ryan Christian and uh, Jeremiah Hosea, are, I would say, my top two favorite analysts, and I would say the top two most important voices. Uh, but the one deficiency I would point to and what, what motivated me to call was when we talk about, okay, so we describe the problems. There's the description, but what about the prescription, right? What is our solution? And then I heard a comment earlier in the conversation about, well, you know, protesting might be good, but I'm not sure what effect it would be. And if we're talking about speaking to the conscience of the powers that be or whatnot, but I would emphasize that the importance of protesting is to raise awareness and to increase organizing and to get more people involved in these issues by getting out in the streets. I agree. Nonviolent direct action. If I could make a quick clarification on that, I want to say, first of all, I support everyone who's protesting in a noble way for whatever the cause. I've been a part of giant protests, and I've been in those protests where I was one of four people standing. I remember protesting against the execution of Shaka Sankofa in Texas, and I was, you know, probably with less than a dozen people protesting in Times Square about something that the average New Yorker knew nothing about. I felt fine in doing that. I felt I was participating in valid action. I encourage all people to protest. But I do want to be realistic in just questioning. I'm not sure if the power structure responds to it. And the classic case being Vietnam. You know, people mm-hmm. protested for years and years and years. Did that shorten the war, the war at all? It seemed like they just kind of turned off the war machine when when they were done with their war games and they let people protest to their heart's content without responding to it at all. Maybe I'm wrong. I, that's, I that's, that's true. That I think that's true. What were you saying, Ryan? Oh, I was just going to say, I actually, I would argue that I, I do think that the anti-war movement, as much as we can easily prove that there was all sorts of co-opted elements, like it always is that I do think it had a, an effect just like those pointing out. I hope so. We're actually talking about, like the awareness part of it to show because some people just don't know these things and they all of a sudden they see you know what are they what are they saying what are they protesting for and they look further into it but I actually do think that there was there was it was a very different time right I think that there there was a level of pressure that was applied through that movement yeah but today I, I that's why I said it that way and, and to be very clear I, I still I go and I participate in protests I go out and I mean we've had rallies ourselves right where we would march around down in, in downtown Franklin and, and, and do our own kind of thing. My point is simply that I, I just don't 
personally think that it has the effect that a lot of people think that it does. Yeah. But that's my point. The same as Phil's saying, do, do it nonetheless because it will draw attention. You can you can share your message with people, and maybe you will affect people's ideas. But whether or not the government ultimately cares or whether that will be any way influential, influential in their decision-making, I kind of don't think that's the case. Yeah. But it still is a valid thing to do. And it's right? great to be out there with other people, decisions. by the way. Just It's a great spiritual feeling to be out there with oh. other people. Make sure people know they're not alone. Absolutely. We're running out of time, unfortunately. Uh, Phil, do you have another comment or so? Because we, we only have a couple minutes. No, no. You know, just in, just in closing, let me close with this. Um, Brian Christian on The Last American Vagabond provides sources and citations for all of his fact claims. Yep. So I know that listeners that are new to this, they might think, wow, well, that's outlandish. But there's sources and references to all of these uh, fact claims, and it's important to back that up. And the, the issues of the CBDC and the... The, still the, the pandemic, injections, the war mongering, all these issues that you brought up are very important. They're unspoken. They're unsung. And I commend you all for talking about it, and I hope you guys continue to do so. Thank you Thank so you much, so much. Phil. Thank you, Phil. Thanks, brother. Yeah, and um, we are kind of at the end of the line here, unfortunately. Um, I want to shout out The Last American Vagabond. Please go to thelastamericanvagabond.com. Please donate to what they're doing it's really vital it's a leading voice in what we call the open source media movement where we say where the information comes from where the information can be challenged and refined it's not this some um, unilateral conversation and um please jeremiahhosea.com buy the theme song of this show or any of the music there buy a song for a buck i greatly appreciate it um i would really like to get to the point where this show can sort of pay for itself because right now it's very much a labor of love and we have great guests lined up and uh, a lot of great things to come um, but I really I want this to be on the map I want to be enfranchised in what we're doing here we have Judy Mikovits next week and uh, yeah I heard we have 30 seconds so I got to roll out. I want to thank you, Ryan. You're on fire as always. Can't wait to hear your continued coverage. You're doing a great job. We, we got your back. And uh, yeah, I let's, just, want, let's, just one last thing. Please. Just like he talked about solutions. We didn't get into it today, but that's monumentally important. So think about that as well, what we can do to actually affect change. Thanks for having me on, brother. I appreciate oh, it. Oh, thank let's you. Yeah, and let, let's uh, stay in touch. Let's talk about that music stuff we were talking about Absolutely. as well. All right, have a great day, Ryan. Looking forward to your, your coverage. You too, brother. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, to listening, for listening to The Baseline. We're out. Um, please check out the archives. Please tell your friends. Peace and love. Yes, it is.